Hebrews 20.20, increment 127, we see Jesus. We're in Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to get up to 5, 8, and 9, but I want to reiterate a question that was asked in our last increment so long ago. How do we square, or we could say, how do we reconcile the apparent contradiction in the evidently contrasting phrases or opposing phrases, justification and life for everyone, that's found in Romans 5.18, and how do we reconcile that with the evidently contrasting phrase, age-abiding salvation for those who obey him? Doesn't that seem to qualify that salvation to be only for those who obey him? And so how can we say that Jesus Christ's obedience resulted in the many being made righteous, and that means the all being justified, regardless of obedience on the part of people? How do we reconcile that with he became the author of eternal or age-abiding salvation to those who obey him. Now, I love to see the scriptures where there's apparent contradictions because, well, I love it and I don't love it because the only way to get the answer to that is to pass through the eye of a sewing needle, basically. Your soul has to pass through the eye of a sewing needle, in essence, So, Father, as we pass through this eye of the needle to answer this question and to reconcile these two apparent contradictions, we pray that you'll guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the genius of the Spirit of truth and the mind of Christ, for we ask it in his name, amen. How do we square or reconcile the apparent contradiction in the evidently contrasting phrases justification and life for everyone with age-abiding salvation for those who obey him? Romans 5.18, Hebrews 5.9. The answer to this merely apparent contradiction is that age-abiding salvation, that's how we'll translate this for now in Hebrews 5.9, age-abiding salvation is the present experience, always qualified by the phrases in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree, because it's not the full experience, but It is the present experience of those who obey the Son. Now, with obey the Son, you have both Hebrews 5.9, those who obey him. You have also John 3.36, another sticking point for some people, where it says those who believe in Jesus Christ have that age-abiding life. Those who do not obey him, Remain under the wrath of God. Same kind of idea, Hebrews 5, 9, John 3, 36. Now, 
those who obey him happen to be of that blessed category of people who fit under this title, especially those who believe. 1 Timothy 4.10. Now, with each paragraph of today's message, I'm going to be the optometrist. I'm going to be dropping down with each paragraph a different lens. And with each lens, hopefully, your vision will get clearer and clearer. The eyes of your heart will see Jesus more and more clear as the lenses become more efficacious to be able to see him. So the first thing I want to say is that those who obey him are of that blessed category of especially those who believe in 1 Timothy 4.10. Jesus also referred to that category of people by saying to Thomas, you believe having seen, you saw and believed. Blessed are those who have believed without seeing or those who believe without seeing. And so these are the blessed category of people who even now have a measurable and discernible degree of the experience of that salvation that will be experienced fully by all human beings in future world. Perhaps even more notable is the fact that those who obey him, now that those who obey him could be those who obey God or those who obey the Son of God. So even more notable is the fact that those who obey him, that is God, are all of humanity whom Jesus includes in his single representative act of obedience. When Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done, in Mark 14, 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was speaking, and indeed he was acting for all human beings as their single inclusive representative. We call him the sir, single inclusive representative. That's why Paul could say that by Jesus' obedience, and that's the obedience of of the one man, Jesus Christ, the second man or the last Adam in that whole Adam-Christ Christology in Romans 5, 12 to 20, which is also found in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and following, and also 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul could say that by Jesus' obedience, the one single inclusive representative, the many and that means the all, in Romans 5, 18 and 19, will be made righteous. By the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous, correlates with and is used interchangeably with by the one righteous act of the one Jesus Christ, in Romans 5, 18, all 
receive justification and life. In Romans 5, 18 and 19, therefore, many equals all and all equals many. And we've also seen this in a blending of Matthew 20, 28, Mark 15, 45 with 1 Timothy 2, 6 in the past. So in Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8, Jesus' obedience is said to be to God the Father. In 5.9, Jesus' obedience to the Father made him, Jesus, the source of age-abiding salvation. Age-abiding salvation. That means a salvation that begins at a point in time at Calvary, as it were, or in the Christ event, and that extends throughout an age without end. That's why I really don't have that much of a qualm with people who say the author of eternal salvation or everlasting salvation. I know what they mean. Those who obey him, is the phrase in Hebrews 5.9, are those who believe in him. And we've seen this kind of equation before. For to believe is to obey, and to obey is to believe. Whether to disobey or obey is the question, but whereas to disobey is to disbelieve, and to disbelieve is to disobey. Disobedience and unbelief are related and even equated just as belief and obedience are related and even equated, not only in Hebrews but also in John and elsewhere in the Scripture. So dis, to disbelieve or to depart from, is one translation, or to stand aloof to the living God, in Hebrews 3.12, is the same as to remain under the wrath of God as one who disobeys the Son, in John 3.36. Now, I'm not following rules here today. I'm not following the rules of commentaries today. I'm thinking. I'm reflecting. And so, if this is going to be a challenge for you. To remain under the wrath of God in John 3.36 is to remain under God's wrath, which is but for a moment. But it's nevertheless real. God's wrath isn't an imaginary thing. Psalm 30 and verse 5 says it's but for a moment. Septuagint 29.6. Momentary wrath resulted in the catastrophic conflagration or fiery judgment of A.D. 70 with the utter fiery destruction of the temple and the subsequent cessation of all Levitical sacrifices therein. But as God's wrath is momentary, God's mercy is everlasting in Psalm 136. He says it 26 times, so most of us would get the point by then. 
Some people need 27 times. That's probably why there's 27 books or documents in the New Testament. But God's everlasting mercy will be expressed even toward the disobedient. You say, prove it. I said, God's everlasting mercy will be expressed or shown even toward the disobedient when Jesus comes a second time with salvation, says Hebrews 9.28. When that same generation whose house was left desolate to them when Jerusalem was destroyed, that same generation, to them Jesus said, you will see me again and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So God's everlasting mercy will be expressed even toward the disobedient when Jesus comes a second time with salvation, Hebrews 9.28, and when they see Jesus again and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Matthew 23.39. And let's relate that to Romans 11:30 to 32 where Paul makes it explicit that God deliberately imprisoned is the word he uses metaphorically the Jews and the Gentiles and imprisoned all humankind in a maximum security prison we could say if we wanted to extend the metaphor of unbelief and disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Evil exists, only the God can bring a greater good from it. So he imprisons everyone under unbelief and disobedience. The whole human race is under that because you don't have faith until God evokes it, ignites it, or kindles it. And neither do I. So God's everlasting mercy will be expressed even toward the disobedient because it says so in the scripture. Everyone is disobedient and in unbelief so that God can show mercy to all, that is, the disobedient and the unbelievers, as well as those in whom he evoked faith during the course of their lives. So when Hebrews 5.9 says that Christ became the source, and you're going to see a lot of the Greek in print. I'm kind of trying to accelerate this study just a little bit now as we move toward the central section. And as we move toward the warning exhortation in 5.11 to 6.20, we might be moving with a little more acceleration, but I don't know because I always say that and then it never happens. But I'm trying to accelerate a little bit today. When Hebrews 5.9 says that Christ became the source of age-abiding salvation, aitios soterias is the word he uses. Aitio, in fact, I probably should write that up here. Aitios soterias, A-I-T-I-O-S. This is another title for Jesus because it means source, or sometimes it's translated as author. Source, and then S-O-T-E-R-I-A-S, soterias, which means salvation, and then 
our famous word aonio, A-I-O-N-I-O-U, aonio, age abiding. That means everlasting in one sense. But aitios soterias aonio, author or source of, of age abiding salvation. So when Hebrews 5.9 says that Christ became the source of age-abiding salvation to those who obey him, it was like Paul saying that the gospel is, quote, the power for salvation, the power of God for salvation or resulting in salvation to all who believe. Romans 1.16. That did not mean that the gospel is the power of God for salvation exclusively to those who believe. Because again, in 1 Timothy 4.10, the scripture says that God is the savior of all human beings. Especially of those who believe. And it's been made many times, not just by me only. It doesn't say exclusively of those who believe, but especially of those who believe. Three truths then pertain here and maybe more and they are indicative of the universally salvific reality that Jesus is Jesus is universally salvific or saving reality so there are three truths that pertain here and maybe more And they are indicative of the universally salvific reality that Jesus is. One, Jesus is the source of salvation to all who obey him inasmuch as those who obey him now by believing experience a foretaste of that so great salvation in Hebrews 2.3. Two, Jesus is the source of age-abiding salvation, aetios soterias aeoniu, poorly pronounced, no doubt. Jesus is the source for a, of age-abiding salvation for all of humanity, regardless of individual belief or unbelief. Why? Because Jesus' faithful obedience is in essence attributed to all because his faithfulness was executed for all and in behalf of all and his obedience resulted in many and that many means all becoming righteous, even as his one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all human beings. I can't get away from Romans 5.18 and 19 when I consider Hebrews 5.9. Three, Jesus is the source of age-abiding salvation for all who obey him, and in the sense of every individual who ever lived. Every individual who ever lived will actually obey him. And believe in him. 
because, as the scripture says, quote, until we all come to the unity of the faith in Ephesians 4.13, and every tongue will pledge obedient allegiance to him, saying, the Lord is Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2.9 to 11, referred to also in Romans 14.11, and conferring with Isaiah 45.23, where that quote is originally found. But add to Isaiah 45.23 this verse in Isaiah 45.17, where the same phrase is used, soterion aeonion, with a slightly different spelling in the Septuagint. In Isaiah 45, 17, the scripture says, Israel will be saved by the Lord with an age-abiding salvation. The same word is used here, only with a slight spelling differential. Soterion, aeonion, just because of a different parsing of the, ver- of the words. And so, Isaiah 45, 17, Israel will be saved by the Lord with an age-abiding salvation. So the Lord there is Christ, is Jesus. So if you compare Isaiah 45, 17 in the Greek with uh, Hebrews 5, 9, you see the advantage of reading the Bible in the Greek. But you also see that Jesus is the Lord who saves Israel. And we know that all Israel will be saved, not just some. In Romans eleven twenty six, just as God will show mercy to all the nations, not only Israel, in Romans eleven thirty two. And how about Isaiah forty five twenty two that comes up to forty five twenty three? Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. The Lord will save Israel with an eternal salvation in 4517. But then he says, turn to me. And this is an irresistible command by God. Turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 4522. And then he says, for I swear that every knee will bow to me and every tongue confess that as Paul interprets it, Jesus is Lord, or Yahweh is Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. They won't do it unwillingly. They will do it voluntarily. They will do it gladly. And Paul even says they will do it praisefully. So don't give me this stuff about they're going to be forced to acknowledge him. And then he throws them into hell. That is a hellish, damnable and stupid doctrine and interpretation of that passage. And I only use that harsh language because I have a zeal for the Lord, and I don't really like it when people misuse and abuse him and the gospel. Now, once again, the AD 70 trajectory has to be brought in here. Those who obeyed or believed in Jesus as the Son of God and followed him in that generation would have gone to him outside Jerusalem, ultimately, and they would have been what? Saved from the momentary wrath of God which came on that generation of unbelievers in Jerusalem. Matthew twenty-three thirty-six. we looked at it, Matthew twenty-four thirty-four too. Now, I say momentary 
wrath because the same population in Jerusalem that went through that wrathful moment and whose house or temple was left desolate of a divine inhabitant. Of that same generation, Jesus said, until you see me again, meaning you will see me again, and you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will evidently be in the resurrection. All right. We're all about horizons here. So to have a different horizon, you have to move to a different vantage point. So let's move to a slightly different vantage point to view Jesus or to see Jesus as the source of age-abiding salvation again. But see if we can view him in his universally saving significance. That's not the main aim of Hebrews, but I'm using Hebrews with that aim in mind because that which Christians are dealing with and that's what, pe that what people are dealing with in the 21st century is the great question of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, which wasn't so much a burning question to first century believers, who most of whom took it for granted, as they did throughout the first several centuries, as many did throughout the first several centuries of what we call church history. The theme of suffering, and especially of the endurance of death in suffering, specifically the experience of death for all as a sacrifice and an offering for sins, which was undergone by Jesus Christ, that theme emerges again in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. The author never gets far from it. Because like Paul, he's determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing detached from that. Nothing that gets very far from that reality. This theme, in fact, radiates throughout the entire homily. And as we're seeing again and again, it is the center of the center of the central part of Hebrews, which is 7.1 to 10.18. So this theme radiates throughout the homily as evinced in Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 2.9 and 10 really, Hebrews 2.17, Hebrews 5.1, 5, 5.7 and 8, and will continue to do so in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, 10, 12, 9.26, backing up a little bit, etc. By this suffering, this unique suffering of the Messiah, and specifically by this death, the death of the cross, which occurred as the end or the termination or the culmination of a lifelong obedience to God by Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. This theme of the death of the cross and this suffering occurred at the end of a lifelong obedience to God by Jesus. And by that death, he became the source or the author of age-abiding salvation to those who obey him. We're looking at this again now. We're at a slightly different vantage point. Those who obey him, 
that faithful phrase, are those who are to be submitted to him. Ultimately, all will be submitted to him and all will acknowledge their obedient allegiance to him willingly. That's not only Philippians 2, 9 to 11, that's Philippians 3, 20 to 21. For when Jesus comes from heaven as our deliverer, he changes the present status of our bodies of humiliation and makes them like his own through a transconfiguration. He makes our bodies like his own body of glory. And then it goes on to say that he's able to do this by the omnipotent power that he will subordinate everything to himself. Subordinating everything to himself, everything and every being becomes submitted to him. Ultimately, all will be submitted to him willingly and all will acknowledge their obedient allegiance to him willingly. So when he is the salvation, he is age-abiding salvation, the author of age-abiding salvation to those who obey him, we're assured from the scriptures that eventually all will obey him. And that's Philippians 3, 20, 21, which also alludes to Psalm 110, 1, and also Philippians 2, 9 to 11, that alludes to Psalm, or to Isaiah 45, 23. And so all will obey him, all will acknowledge him, all will believe in him as faith or believing will be evoked in all, as Ephesians 4.13 says, when we all come to the unity of the faith. And the Holy Spirit is the one who evokes that faith because I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on flesh, he evokes faith in Jesus Christ. That's John 16, 7 to 11, coupled with Joel 2, 28. So if he pours his spirit out on all flesh, then all flesh will come to faith. And so faith or believing will be evoked in all, Ephesians 4.13, by the Holy Spirit who will have been poured out on all flesh, first Joel, that is, 2.28. Furthermore, Jesus' own obedience to the will of his Father, which is a universally saving will in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Jesus' obedience was one, obedience to the Father's all-saving will and intention. And two, Jesus' own obedience was obedience which was executed by him in behalf of all human beings because Jesus is the second man, the eschatological Adam, whose obedient act was representative of all and to the benefit of all and in one sense we could even say was attributed to all, leading to justification and life for all, just as Adam's act of disobedience was enacted in representation of all to the detriment of all, by which sin was caused to pass on all and caused all to be constituted as sinners and to be condemned. 
That in itself is what we might call an evil. But evil exists and allows, God allows it to exist only to bring out a greater good. That's what he did with human history. That's what he's doing with the history of the United States of America right now. And even with the history of the nations. So, as I said in our last increment, I'm pretty optimistic when it comes to God's plan. The entire theme of Hebrews was set, framed as it were, introduced in the exordium or the introduction. That's Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In that complex periodic sentence which proclaimed the Son, the Son, in whom God spoke with decisive finality in these last days. The confession that we're hearing so much about, that the readers are urged to hold fast, is simply that Jesus is the Son of God, who is referred to in Hebrews 1.5, with allusions to Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7.14, as well as 1 Chronicles 17.13, also known as 1 Supplements in the Septuagint, whereas Samuel Second Samuel is related to or called second reigns in the Septuagint. This confession, homologia, was that which separated or distinguished these followers of Jesus from the temple worship in Jerusalem, the so-called holy city. And in doing so, this dissociation according to their unbelieving contemporaries, divorced them from the indispensable privilege of having an archpriest who would render service to God on their behalf and present the gifts and offerings for sins that were necessary for them to be ritually purified. So this charge or this accusation leveled at them from the Jewish subculture of the Roman Empire and from their former associates in Judaism, really had an invisible source behind it, as we saw two increments ago. For the charge, or two or three even, for the charge was, at its source, an accusation from the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Jesus, for he's not ashamed to call us his siblings. Now we saw that with the connection of Romans, or make that... Revelation 12, 9 and through 11, and Hebrews 2, 11 to 13. Now, by urging his readers to go to Jesus outside the camp in the climactic exhortation in Hebrews 13, 13, the teaching pastor must not be understood to be saying, now I want you to get this point now because I want to reemphasize it and emphasize it several more times in our study. By urging his readers to go to Jesus outside the camp, this PT must not be understood to be saying that they must dissociate altogether from society, whether the Greco-Roman society or the Judaistic society, because how else could they evangelize? And that's the very way they're going to experience reproach is by not dissociating themselves utterly from all people. Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians, you can't dissociate yourselves entirely from 
adulterers because then you'd have to go outside of the world. You'd have to go out of the world. You can't be away from idolaters. You can't be away from all kinds of sinful people because then you'd have to go out of the world altogether. First Corinthians, I think around 5.12 says that. So give me some grace. It's close. So the camp that they were to go outside of was the camp of compromise. And for us, the camp that we're to go outside of is the camp of Adamic ontology and from compromise with various ideologies. In any case, this is what we got so far in Hebrews 5. And we'll begin to close now. Increment 127. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. And who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray since he himself experiences weakness in many ways? And because of this weakness, which sometimes leads to sin in every archpriest except Jesus, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself, except for Jesus. And no one takes this honor on himself, the honor of archpriesthood, but is called by God, just as Aaron was. Similarly, and please note the presence of the law of similarity here, the Messiah did not promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, also said in another place, you are a priest for the age just like Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, that is, during his earthly life, he, Jesus, offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience. Although he was the son, the son, this refers from 5.8 all the way back to 1.2, he learned this obedience through suffering. Only in the Greek do you see that there's a paramnesia or a paranomasia here or a play on words or almost like a pun. It says he learned is E-M-A-T-H. I'll just do the English transliteration for time. You'll see the rest in print. Emathen, he learned obedience, this obedience through suffering is epathen. Emathen and epathen. It's supposed to make the point. It's supposed to drive it home. He learned this obedience through suffering. We could even say he demonstrated this obedience through suffering. And then verse 9, only then does it say, and being made complete, he became to those who obey him the source of age-abiding salvation. Let's see how obedience works in Jesus obedience here in 5 7 and following again in the days of his flesh he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience although he was the son he learned this obedience through suffering 
and being made complete, that is, completing this act of obedience, culminating this life of obedience, he became to those who obey him the source of age-abiding salvation. The, the sense here that's missing in almost every commentary is those who obey him are all encompassed and included in Jesus who was obedient to the Father. His one act of obedience made all of human beings righteous in Romans 5.19. This is hard to say, as the writer is even going to say in 5.11 and following. This is hard to make intelligible to you. And I wouldn't say to my audience, because you're dull of hearing, like the PT says to his, but maybe that's the case in some cases. But for me, it's hard to make this intelligible because of my inadequacy as a teacher and a communicator. I need help to make this clear. So that's why I asked for prayer. So being made complete, that means in re with regard to his own obedience, he became to those who obey him the source of age-abiding salvation. Now in closing today, Please notice that to those who obey or believe in him, remember obey and believe are equal or at least parallel. Please notice that to those who obey or believe in him, he is the source of salvation. That means if you turn to the subject or the one who obeys, the individual who obeys, the individual who believes, that means that he's perceived rightly as such he is the author of eternal or age abiding salvation for everybody but he's only perceived as that <clears throat> acknowledged as that and appreciated as that by those who obey him that's one sense that's being offered here and so we're engaged in the very difficult theological functional specialty of interpretation here so to those who disobey and disbelieve, he is not perceived as the source of age-abiding salvation. Not yet. Not yet. So now we're circling back to a fruitful insight which moved me and others outside of a dispensational camp years ago. And that insight regards the once and for all and once only used phrase in Galatians 6.16 called the Israel of God. Again, I'm only hinting towards something that we must revisit and develop more fully. The doctrine of the Israel of God. It's going to be necessary in these, the course of this study of Hebrews to revisit it and to expand upon it. And that's a hint. But what does 5.10 do? 5.10 of Hebrews calls Jesus not only the priest forever or the priest for the age, according to Melchizedek, which kind of repeats the idea of 5.6. But this time he adds that he's an arch priest. And this becomes the theme that is resonant throughout the central part of Hebrews, which is chapter 7, verse 1 through 1018. But in between 510 
and we're not done really with 5.1 to 10 yet. There's a lot of things I want to still look at. Between 5.10 and 7.1, in fact, there's an inclusio between 5.10 and 6.20, in which there is a kind of necessary education being provided for the listeners to prepare them to receive the development of this doctrine and the development and clar clarification of this insight and what it means, the significance of having a great archpriest and what it means. So, 5, 1 to 10 is kind of a subsection within itself that we're going to look at one more time at least. 5.11 to 6.20 is a preparatory exhortation and a kind of a preliminary education and preparation to prepare them for the central section, 7.1 to 10.18, at the center of the center of which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we might even suggest Jesus Christ and him crucified in his universally saving significance. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity once again to look into the perfect law of liberty, the perfect word that liberate, liberates, the complete message that sanctifies us and consecrates us to a life of meaningful fellowship with you, Father, and with your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that these constant attentiveness of those who are following in this series called We See Jesus that their constant attentiveness will bear fruit in a, an efficacious kind of living and being, in a way of being, that will be impactful in this life toward the salvation of many. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.